Another tipping point in time, as we take a second look at the world, where we say, what if? This episode focuses on the post-World War II conflict between the USA and the Soviet Union, and asks the question, what if the Cold War between the two superpowers went horribly wrong? And how would the world look if a Tsar bomber, noted as the Russian monster bomb, was dropped on American soil and devastated the New York skyline? This, as before, is a work of fiction, with the ideas of what could have happened. So we need a catalyst, something that changes the course of history. We begin the work of fiction, that being the failed assassination attempt of John F. Kennedy, who survives the Dallas shooting, but leads to a horrific end of civilization before the end of 1967. Thousands of onlookers, noted to be in the region of over 150,000 people, have lined the streets of downtown Dallas on a sunny Texas day on November the 22nd, 1963, to see John F. Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, campaigning to help raise more funds and awareness for the Democratic Party as the 1964 election is looming. At 12.27pm, the presidential motorcade nears the Adolphus Hotel with a continuous large crowd celebrating the arrival. At 12.30pm, Lee Harvey Oswald has been sighted inside the Texas Book Depository, firing at the American president by security personnel, and has been apprehended. The lone gunman, who has been partially successful in the staged attack, is now in custody. Bullets are aimed at the motorcade transporting the president and first lady, Jackie Kennedy, but the governor of Texas, John Connolly, suffers the fatal blows to the head and neck as he sits in the open-topped limousine at the rear of the vehicle due to an unrehearsed seating area when the parade began. JFK and Jackie Kennedy have been told to wait for the late-coming Connolly, as this was a promotional political push for the governor to gain more votes within his constituency. Connolly's wife Nellie cradles his lifeless body as the president suffers serious wounds to his back. The car speeds off towards Parkland Memorial Hospital, where upon arrival, JFK and his wife are whisked away for emergency treatment. Although a grim scenario, the president survives, and within 24 hours addresses the nation upon his return to Washington DC. There is a morning parade for the Connolly family, but the president's resolve to serve the American people has never been stronger and gains more public support in the months that follow. Following his successful 1964 re-election landslide victory, and now in his second term in office, John F. Kennedy proceeds to give America its golden age and reaffirms the space race between America and the Soviets by plowing a further $15 billion into the program to get a man on the moon as soon as possible. On the 30th of July 1966, not only do England win the Footballing World Cup, but at 18.17pm, on the same date, Commander Walter Marty Shearer Jr. and Lunar Module Pilot Ronnie Walter Cummingham land the Apollo 7 capsule onto the surface of the moon to rapturous scenes across the world thus furthering the romanticism of Western capitalism and culture, but also provides America's stance as a dominating world superpower, with the Soviet Union now heavily underfoot. This overbearing might of Western prowess alerts the East, and work continues in secret to bring down America from within. Shortly after the 1966 moon landing, President Kennedy is under investigation for his unbridled affairs whilst in office including the high-profile connection between himself and Marilyn Monroe, shortly before her apparent suicide on the 5th of August 1962.
This was put forward by the Russian Committee of State Security, otherwise known as the KGB as intelligence, stating that officials in the American political system were aware of Kennedy's connections with the notorious city mob gang culture, keeping the voting system in line with his ideals and attempting to cover up numerous female liaisons as not to arouse a bad reputation with the American people. This all comes to a head when President Kennedy is impreached through rumors that turn out to be truth, as reports are unearthed that during the re-election campaign, he shared a mistress with mafia boss Sam Giancana, the overseer of the criminal Chicago outfit, a syndicate of organized crime units across the state of Illinois. This becomes one, if not the biggest scandal in modern American history, and Kennedy is sentenced to four years in prison in November 1966. With Kennedy's fall, it brings about the rise of John Edgar Hoover becoming president after a snap election in early 1967. An aging pillar of the American institution, Hoover transforms his power from the Federal Bureau of Investigation to the White House, but it's not without its reasoning. The American Mafia were behind the control of the political system through blackmail and deceit, as Hoover would lessen the grip on organized crime. This was due to obtaining photographs by the mob showing the new president cross-dressing and engaging in questionable activities for the statesman. These pictures were never revealed to the public, but widespread reputation of the story would haunt the White House. The blackmail does not stop there, now appearing to have Hoover acting as a puppet. This allows a mass dangerous drug network to begin in earnest, with Cuba only mere miles away from the United States mainland. What does Cuba gain from this? As an advocate and supporter of communist values, Cuba sides with the Soviet Union during the heightened stages of the Cold War, resulting in the creation of a Soviet nuclear weapons facility shortly after Hoover comes to power. The economy and trade of the underdeveloped country begins to thrive, all through dirty money tactics, with yet again another looming and credible threat of nuclear war. A mass public exodus across major US cities begins, with the testing of their devastating hydrogen bomb starting back in 1961, six years have now passed, and the Soviet Union has the perfect opportunity to rebuild and modify the Tsar bomber and other supporting nuclear silos around the Western Hemisphere, especially in Cuba, endorsing their military might. Original plans had the Tsar bomb capable of emitting a 50 megaton blast of trinitrotoluene, or TNT for short, measuring over 1,500 times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki attacks combined. With the events leading up to 1967, the Soviets now have in their hands a fully nuclear-loaded Tsar bomb that has the ability to detonate with the power of approximately 100 megatons. The downside for it was to be used. The plane carrying the payload would not survive the horrendously violent explosion. This sadly, in this timeline, will become real soon enough. June 1967, the arms race flares up again in earnest. Communication between the two rival nations is at breaking point and the second Cuban Missile Crisis. Similar to the events on October 1962 are repeating in front of the eyes of the world once more. Soviet and American submarines are beginning to circle closely during routine patrols of Cuban waters, with American intelligence advising that the submarines owned by the Soviets are once again carrying torpedoes armed with Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapons. The US Navy fleet are ordered to drop various depth charges to surface the loaded submarines, and at 8.28am on the 4th of June 1967, 
which is seen as an act of aggression by Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, who will not stand for the American military tactics any longer, and orders the first aerial nuclear strike across foreign soil at 8.30 am. A modified Russian Topolev Tu-95 bomber takes off from a covert Cuban airfield, carrying the 100 megaton loaded Tsar bomb. Peace deals have been exhausted and the world is prepared for the worst. In the meantime, panic across all communication systems is sounded. This is the beginning of the end. The air raid sirens are sounded and the emergency broadcast system is alerted to begin. America is at war. Across the population, civilization is in turmoil, traffic is at a standstill, shops are gutted and there is no care for others, as multiple reports of injuries and fatalities are coming through via the effects of escaping stampedes of people clamoring to escape the oncoming storm. At 8.35am, a single small nuclear warhead explodes high above the North Sea. The huge pulse of energy reverberates and burns out the majority of electrical systems across Great Britain and Northwest Europe. America is now vulnerable to oncoming attack. They know the infrastructure will be targeted. Violent submarine-launched ballistic missile warheads have now been ordered to target nearby regions of the United States. Texas is a primary target so far with a population of 10.5 million people. The next few minutes are an onslaught of attacks on America as Soviet warheads succeed in reaching targets, and the devastation totals to over 80,000 people losing their lives only within 12 minutes of the first wave of bombs dropping. The United States retaliates by launching their own spat of intercontinental ballistic missiles, launching from secret underground silos, in particular across Travis Country and Nebraska, Local onlookers pause and watch on in dread as they see the skies fill with the unescapable doom that cannot be stopped. Communications have already gone down between allied nations and the Soviets next plan to hit the one true ideology of capitalism, the economy. The destination of the bomber is now the New York City Stock Exchange and the island of Manhattan. This will be the last flight of Lieutenant Colonel Andrei Dunovstev who was the test pilot back when the first Tsar bomber was dropped on the 30th of October 1961. Already a hero of the Soviet Union, this will be viewed as his final act of allegiance to his motherland, as he knows the blast will obliterate his plane, with or without the already utilized painted radiation shielding. This is a suicide mission at the expense of billions of human lives. From Cuba, the bomber will take approximately five hours to reach Manhattan, with no altercation in the skies above, as American air forces are left in chaos, there is no more early warning radar. This will be a smooth flight for the bomber. Nuclear war is underway, and by 8.52am, the mutually agreed destruction exchange between the east and west totals in the region of around 3,000 megatons of radiation. And due to fallout from the blasts, Washington DC, San Francisco, and the majority of Texas are now considered wastelands. The casualties are already in the region of 48 million American souls alone. The remnants of the US government have left the emergency broadcast system running constant for anyone to hear, but it will be to no support to anyone. Before all lines of communication are severed, the last broadcast sounds the star-spangled banner in defiance. At 2.46pm, the Tsar bomber reaches its targeted destination, the skyline of New York City purposefully left standing by Russian intelligence for this last act of the Third World War. The payload is released by the pilot, who cracks a cyanide tablet into his mouth, killing himself in an instant. The bomb explodes with an airburst detonation. 
and there is an unbridled and deathly silence before even more panic ensues. The explosion erupts with ferociously tenacity, and the entirety of New York City is taken out by a single blast, along with Governor's Island and Liberty State Park, which all become part of the immense fireball seen as wide as from public in the Bayville area, along with the reverberation of residential homes and offices across Patterson, Yonkers, Newark, and Hampstead feeling the effects by collapsing through the pressure of the explosion. The effects of the detonation results in an earthquake measuring a seismic power of 7.8 on the Richter scale, but the majority of the shockwave is not recorded due to an airburst explosion. Windows shatter, buildings are reduced to rubble and dust. This is it. Death is inevitable. The first rounds of casualties are in the region of 8 million killed from the initial detonation and a further 6 million injured. That number is soon to rise from the fallout. Modern civilization is now over, with more problems still to come for humanity. Over the coming days and weeks since the attack, the capacity to heal via health drives and hospitalization has failed. The local communities that have survived are wandering across the American wasteland aimlessly unlost. Physically blinded by the fireball and suffering through the effects of radiation poisoning. By this time, there is no aid through treated water, drugs, or basic first aid equipment. And with no electricity or professional medical support, there is no way a surgeon, a doctor, or any sort of medical practitioner can execute their skills effectively. They are all just trying to survive as much as the next person. Shelters are another commodity that appeared fruitful before the attacks, but now seem to become toxic in both atmosphere and in health. Human waste is unfortunately in abundance. Not all shelters have the luxury of a sanitized toilet system, so people are resorting to relieving waste in corners or in used paper and plastic bags. Many are suffering from diarrhea, resulting from stress, anxiety, or radiation sickness. It becomes intolerable and barely a safe haven for any survivors but the genuine feeling of hope still lingers through true grit and determination to stay alive. Underground, Hoover and his surviving aides are taking cover beneath the east wing of the White House in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, watching the horror unfold on the world above in front of their eyes through sketchy reports at best. The total number of lives lost after two months stands at an alarming two and a half billion, with just over half a billion souls left on the planet alive. Food resources are depleting, so too is the need for money since the attack. So the last remaining act of the American government before blackout is to treat the remaining stockpile of food and water as currency. It is to be used as rewards for clearing the radioactive debris or withheld as punishment for not attending to serve duty to the country. Pregnant, the disabled and the old are not exempt and in the horrific view of this new dystopian world, there are two very harsh realities. If you work, you survive. If you don't, you die. The remaining surviving law enforcement, that once were peaceful, are now committing strategic attacks upon groups of rebels that are attempting to either steal food rations or gain entry into secured premises, storing what remains of much-needed supplies. Four months have passed since the attacks. There is no political lead anymore. The surviving American people are alone, and now in a very difficult early transition period of moving to a safe sanctuary. The main focus now, avoiding looters and degenerates that roam the once secured landscape and heading to the nearest agricultural fixed point 
which will be clinical in order to live. Meat is now an expensive commodity due to the nuclear fallout and lack of farmed animals anymore. The only available meat source comes from cats, dogs, and rats, once considered family pets, thus causing infectious disease through small pockets of each surviving community. Fuel shortages mean this could be the final time harvesters are used to collect produce before nuclear winter hits. And it does hit. It hits hard. Due to the effects of the firestorms of bombs, heavy smoke and radiation enters the stratosphere, covering the majority of the sky in a blanket of thick black soot. And with no direct natural sunlight coming through, the Earth begins to cool with Arctic-like temperatures across the wide span of North America, causing crop failure and mass famine. With the effects of hypothermia setting in and surviving young and old suffering from malnutrition, their protective layers of flesh and muscle are much thinner than before, and many die within the first six months. There is no agriculture, there is no electricity, and there is no support from overseas. This truly is the end, but what is important is that life will go on regardless of whether or not humankind survives. The earth will continue, but it will look dramatically different to the one that people once knew. As mentioned, this is a hypothetical view on what would happen if historical events occurred in a different way, so factual elements are minimal at best. But it is a frightening view on what could happen if the world went thermonuclear by a simple twist of fate. Thankfully, this reality is a work of fiction, but it does bode heavily on what the American and Russian public went through in the early days of the real Cuban Missile Crisis, and how close we came to an abrupt apocalypse. It's safe to say that Albert Einstein commented very well when discussing the possibility of a Third World War, stating, I do not know with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. This elaborates how the world that we know would cease to exist and more medieval ethics would take control. And in this digital age, it does not seem comforting to know that if by chance the bombs did drop, life would be a hellish struggle just to obtain the simplest of amenities we take for granted. No Wi-Fi capabilities, no new movies coming out, no gaming, no escapism. Currently, there are approximately over 17,000 registered nuclear weapons scattered across the globe, and if one high-powered Tsar bomber could cause so much potential damage, can you dread to think about the reality of what if this power fell into the wrong hands? With one click of a button, life can change in an instant.